G'day, my name's Jeremy Cownan and welcome to Property, Australia's favourite obsession. Now today we have got a ripper episode because when we first started PAFO, one of the things that I said that I wanted to do was to show you how we've all got a connection to property. That I wanted to bring you interesting and inspiring stories about property, but from people that you might not expect and in ways you might not have thought about. And that's exactly what we've got today. And today I'm joined by Dr. Lee Gray. He's a professor of architecture and history at the School of Architecture and a senior associate dean in the College of Arts and Architecture at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. And Lee's area of expertise is the lift, or the elevator, as they call it in the US. Now, you might be thinking, why on earth would we be having a guy come on and talk about lifts? But when you think about it, the lift has had an enormous impact on society. It's had an even bigger impact on land prices and the way in which we use land. Because without the lift, we don't have the ability to go higher and higher. The Industrial Revolution turbocharged the use of the industrial lift. It provided huge productivity gains in the industrial sector. And then it created huge industrial productivity gains, which of course increased profit. But the development of the lift soon turned its impact to society more generally. First in the large hotels of the 1850s and 60s, and eventually into residential property and then commercial office blocks. The lift has enabled us to amortise the cost of land higher and higher. It has driven prices in our cities sky highs because it means that developers will pay more and more for land knowing that they can amortise the price of that land higher and higher as they build upwards towards the skies. But the elevator or the lift has had a lot bigger impact than just the industrial office blocks and residential towers because it's changed the entire fabric of our cities. It's enabled urbanisation on a massive scale, which has brought about huge infrastructure spends in things like transportation. I'm thinking here subways, roadways, trains, buses, that sort of stuff. Of course, bridges, etc. to be able to move people in and out. But the lift has enabled higher density living and higher density working capacities within our city. It has enabled the advent of the modern city. Without the lift, our cities could not look or function as they do today. And although we don't think about the lift in our everyday lives, and although it's a technology that we just take for granted, it has had a huge impact on us all and an even bigger impact on land and land prices. And that's what we're here to learn about today. So here to talk to me about the development and impact of the lift is Dr. Lee Gray. Lee, welcome to Property, Australia's favourite obsession. I'm delighted to be here. I'm really excited to have this conversation, Lee, because the lift has been responsible for enormous productivity gains um, in our use of buildings and land, enabling us to reach for the sky, to live and work in the clouds. Um, you know, we've been using lifts for all of our lives every day. Um, all of us, you know, have been touched by lifts. But I want to ask the first question. I want to start off by asking, Lee, why do we behave so strangely when we're in and around lifts? So that's a wonderful question. And it really has to do, I think, with the fact that um, when you walk into a building, very obviously, we know buildings are filled with rooms. And most of us can assess the kind of room that we're in, and that will help inform our behavior. And then we step into this tiny, tiny little room that is the lift cab. 
but it looks like a room. It has four walls, a floor, a ceiling. We know how we're supposed to behave in most rooms, except this is very small. And its size for many people is the defining factor in that, um, and this does vary from culture to culture, but most Western cultures, most individuals, we have a very large sense of personal space. We really are uncomfortable if someone stands too close to us. And that's sort of hard to avoid um, when you're riding in a lift. So that's part of it is, is it's the space and it's such a small space. And it also, it's a space that has, it, it has certain sort of behavior conditions. You know, we have to, not always with modern lifts, but often press a button to take us to our destination. And if we're by ourselves, this is easy. We press the button, we stand directly in the center of the car and enjoy our privacy. When someone else enters the lift, then there's etiquette. Do we speak? Do we offer to press the button? Do we look at our phone and shuffle to our corner? And um, it has a lot to do with, I think, the spatial dynamics of, of the lift in uh, as well as how we think about our own personal space. It's amazing, isn't it, that we stand in, in the lobby and we're happy to talk and yet our behavior changes so much as soon as we enter the, as soon as we hear the, the, the bing of the bell, isn't it? It's almost like the silence comes and we all become a little bit awkward. Yes, and, and what's really interesting about that behavior is you can see uh, variations in that. So for example, if you've ever attended a, a large conference at a convention hotel and you suddenly realize you know lots of people there, um, especially at the end of a conference day, the lift experience is very different. You're talking to people, joking, you're all going to dinner or you recognize people and suddenly there's a very different environment, but you're, but you're, you're right in an office building lift um, conversation ceases because even if you, you know, you were just talking to a person who got on the lift with you, you don't know the other people in the car it's courtesy to a degree to sort of respect, I guess, the sort of silence of the lift. And when occasionally someone dares to answer their phone, it's 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 often viewed as incredibly rude and disruptive. Yeah. Because you, yeah. it, everyone tries desperately not to listen while they're also listening very intently because <laughs> the talk on their phone on the lift. It's quite, it's quite a strange phenomena, isn't it? And, and there's something else that really struck me when I was really thinking about um, the lift as 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 a vertical room, I guess a, move, a room that moves up vertically. And, and we'll get onto the productivity gains that lifts have created to society in a moment. But it struck me that it's a very democratic form of transportation too, isn't it? That there's no first class or second class in a lift. If a lift is available, then... It's available to everyone, isn't it? That um, regardless of um, you know status, sex, religion, you know money, etc. Um, you know we all essentially you know there's only very few occasions when we when you know we're not available to to use a public lift. That's yes, that is certainly true in most settings. There are still, um, and I think you find this more in perhaps hotels or some other settings where there is a slight segregation where you have service lifts, um, very specifically designed so that um, the the housekeeper doesn't ride up with the guests or the person who's collecting what you know material from a hotel room or. Uh, you know, doing maintenance on a building. So sometimes we still have segregated uses, 
And um, one, and, and, and I know just the outline of what I'm about to say, but depending on the country that you're in, India, for example, is a good, um, or rather India is a good example of, if I live in an apartment, uh, or rather if I have an apartment or a condominium in a high rise in India, I may still very reasonably expect uh, first thing in the morning, fresh milk to be delivered and my paper to be delivered. And yet, um, given the nature of Indian society, I may or may not want to encounter those delivery people yeah, right. in the lift with me. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, an exception to, to the sort of democratic rule that you've talked about. Um, of course, the history of lifts is such that when we had lift operators, again, more specifically in um, apartment buildings or residential high rises, but in some office buildings, the lift operator was also a gatekeeper in that they could keep some people out by not permitting them entry to the lift because they viewed that as part of their responsibility. I'm really looking forward to actually getting to that about um, the lift operators and, and their role because it is actually quite... Um, uh, quite important to the development of the lift and, and the productivity gains that have come about from it. But I've heard you use the wonderful phrase, um, vertical railways, um, which I think is a fantastic description of uh, lifts. But let's maybe straighten something out right at the front, Lee. Lift or elevator? Which way do we go here? Is there a difference? So, um, of course, Americans all say elevator. Um the Brits um, and, and Australia and other places all say lift. This comes down to a very interesting aspect of technology. Um, conveyors, material conveyors. If you think of some um, industrial processes uh, where there's a conveyor carrying, let's say, gravel or other material on, on a, in, a, in a quarry or something like that. Um, Often those were referred to as elevators because they were elevating, literally elevating material. Grain elevator is another good example. A grain elevator elevates the grain up and then stores it. And in the United States, for reasons I don't know, we just took that word, well, it, if it takes stuff up, goods, materials, yep. well, we'll just use it for, for carrying people as well. Um, in the UK, and I do not know exactly the, I don't know the, the precise origin, the decision was, well, we have the word elevator, it carries goods and other materials. Well, we don't want to use that to carry people, so lift. And, and that, was, that was a differentiation. And you can find in other cultures as well, if you look at, um, and I'm the first to say all of my, my French, my Spanish, my Italian, they're all terrible. But if you look at those languages, there are specific words for a freight elevator, a passenger elevator, uh, and, yeah, and right. they're specific that because they are viewed as and not illogically very different things. Americans are, you know, we're the only ones who just, oh, it's just an elevator and we let it go. Elevator, yeah. Interesting. That's really interesting. It's probably... Um, important that we sort of start at the beginning. Um, it's, so Archimedes, as I understand, was designed one of the first known elevators. Um, the Romans used them to lift gladiators into the Colosseum, etc. 
Um, Louis XV had his flying chair to take him to his chambers. Can you maybe just give us a really quick um, you know, rundown of the history of the lift up to maybe the Industrial Revolution when I think the, the lift or the elevator really started to change and create significant product productivity gains? Um, well, that you, you've just put your finger on, on actually one of the deficits in terms of my knowledge base and research. Search. I know all of the, the references that you just spoke of. My research has been almost exclusively focused on the, when we first had mechanized lifts and then what happens after that. Because up until that point, there are really very few and far between, you know, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the lift for the French king, which may or may not have been for his mistress. We're not quite sure. Um, you know, those were very specialized and very isolated instances that had no, really no impact on sort of life as, as, as we think about it. It's, it's, it's really only the introduction of the mechanized lift and it begins in factories that we see a, 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 a fundamental change where the presence of the lift has an impact broadly ac across a given culture. So that's a, probably a great way to roll into that industrial revolution. So what sort of impacts are we talking about and, and, and you know, how deep does, does it go? So the, the, the first mechanized lift that I've been able to discover is very early in the 19th century. Uh, it's in the first decade of the 19th century in England in a textile mill. And it was designed specifically to carry products from floor to floor to speed up processing. It was not designed to carry people, although it had an operator, it was designed to carry material from floor to floor. And basically, and this is around 1806, 1807, something like that. For the first 50 years of the 19th century, um, all lifts are used in industrial settings. They're used to carry goods and materials, not to carry people. And it's in the mid 19th century that then, um, when by the time we get to the 1850s, we have lots of lifts in industrial settings and warehouses and in factories. And there is a growing realization as other new types of buildings begin to appear like the large urban hotel that there may be a need to take that technology and to transform it so that it is so that in addition to having lifts that carry goods we have lifts that carry people those early lifts that you're talking about lee um they were steam powered and and quite um rough or rudimentary weren't they 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 certainly wasn't a a smooth um up and down movement like we uh um you know we get to um enjoy today and my understanding is that they were pretty dangerous sort of uh, machines that um, were prone to uh, to accidents and, and mishap yes all of what you said is just true the the a freight lift was um what was often called a platform lift and it's exactly what it sounds like. There was no car. There was simply an open platform that you loaded the goods on. Maybe there was a, a low railing around, often not. You loaded, you loaded the, the goods on um, and then, uh, and they were all controlled by what was known as a shipper rope. Um, and the reason for that was, while yes, they were 
most often run by steam engines. Um, this is where uh, the story gets complicated in a sense in that in a 19th century factory, say in the 1850s, I might have one large steam engine running 20 machines. And how it did that is the steam engine would turn, um, would be connected to and turn uh, a, a shaft um, that would run the length of the factory. Attached to the shaft would be pulleys. Um, attached to a machine would be pulleys. And then between the pulleys would be leather belts. So as the shaft turns, the pulleys turn, the leather belts turn, and that's how I would impart movement to a machine. And by having what was called an open belt, and then if I take about, if you think about taking a rubber band and you hold it open, and then if you twist it once, you, you've just reversed the direction of movement. So I could yeah. actually have a machine with two belts so I could run it forwards and backwards and so those are two pulleys. And on a machine, I would have a third pulley, which would spin freely, which we would think of today as neutral. So mm -hmm. I, could, I could operate my machine forwards, backwards, or not at all, while the power continues to run. Because the idea of that we think about today that every machine has its own engine or motor, that's a modern concept that really doesn't develop until well into the 19th century. And then that, that's actually one of the fundamental challenges that designers faced when they wanted to make lifts to carry people is there was no direct connection between the steam engine and the lift in a factory. That is not going to work when I go to a hotel. And that's when we get what are known as direct connected lifts where the engine is directly connected to the mechanism that, that makes the lift rise and fall. And, but yes, you are right, steam engines are not quiet, quiet, gentle things. Uh, they're loud. Um, they're, when you start and stop them, it's fairly dramatic. Um, and uh, they were a real challenge. So, Lee, I'm a big believer that um, we need to learn from history that the, the more we can learn about the past and the more we can understand about the future. But it's really imperative that we always look at history through the eyes of the time and not through the eyes of the now where we impart our own expectations, understandings or social standards um, on that particular event. Now, the functionality of the lift as we see it today is, is you know, to efficiently move essentially people um, and produce, I guess, around, yet it's very different to the technology and the reason it was installed, you know, in, in the 1860s um, in the hotel industry and some of the shops, um, wasn't it, um, uh, um, you know, when it was originally uh, started to be used? Yes. Um, and, and the issue here is, and it's true with anything, is that when something is new, it has to be introduced. And also there has to be a need. And so the need was uh, with the development of the large urban hotel in the 1860s in the United States and in Europe. And at that point in time, the large urban hotel, um, all of them prided themselves on having all of the latest amenities. You know, this is where I would go. And, um, and, and here we have to remember the middle of the 19th century, um, there would be a bathroom adjacent to, you know, to the room I was staying in. This is incredible. Um, there would be steam heat 
in my room. Mm. Um, you know, there would be gas light. There, there would there there could be technology that I did not have back home. And as the Grand Hotel develops, um, almost simultaneously in in New York and in and and um, not in London, Birmingham, I think um, I'm blanking on the city. Uh, there was recognition that uh, well, and we provide all these amenities. What if we had this? This, this machine that would take our guests upstairs and they wouldn't have to walk because by now most of the hotels were four and five stories. Well, of course I can make more money if I can get lift, if I can easily get guests up to the top floor. So the, ho so the first passenger lifts were literally tiny little rooms. The door would open, um, the operator would open the door you would step in if you were a guest, the, the elevator car would be lined with these beautifully upholstered benches. You would sit down, there's a nice gas chandelier hanging down from the center of the lift. Uh, there's mirrors on the walls. After everyone is comfortably seated, the operator would close the door. The lift would go up very, very slowly because it's not about speed, it's about luxury. Mm. And I would arrive at my floor. And throughout most of the 1860s, in hotels and in um, very, what we would now think of as high-end department stores, um, that was the experience. It wasn't about speed. It was this wonderful luxury that you are providing your guests or your customers. So how was that technology perceived by the public at that time in the 1850s, 60s, 70s? Um, it, it, it was almost all positive. Um, one of the interesting things that happened uh, in the United States is when the first lift appeared in the Fifth Avenue Hotel in the press coverage, uh, they immediately said, this is wonderful. Pretty soon we'll all have one in our house. I'm still waiting for the lift in my house. It, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reaching an age where that, that might actually be very helpful. Um, I'm only single floor, so I don't probably need one, Lee. Okay. Um, but it's, uh, it was, it was positive at the same point in time, the lift manufacturers recognized that, um, they did need to reassure the public that this was safe, which is why almost every lift manufacturer of any, of any of them, when they advertised their lift, it was John Doe's safety lift, Jane Doe's safety lift. They always put the word safety in there to remind everyone this is safe because there were, it was very common to read about an accident in a factory where a, a hoisting rope let go or the machinery broke. And if you were lucky, only goods were damaged, but often people were injured and often killed. I wanted to ask you about that um, as to how important do you think that 1953 New York World Trade Fair was? Was that a critical point for the evolution of the lift when Elisha Isis stood on his elevated platform above the crowd um, and, you know, yelled those words, cut the rope, where they cut the rope and the platform fell and um, obviously he was um, uh, showing off his um, his braking system for the elevator. Do, do you think that was a critical turning point for uh, the technology? 
So that's a wonderful question. And that certainly is one of those moments that um, if you, you know, anyone who's ever Googled elevator history has come across 1853, Elijah Oda's New York Crystal Palace. Um, mm -hmm. Yes, that event happened. Um, did it revolutionize um, elevators at that time? No, it was an interesting event. Um, Otis's business did not really take off as a business until the 1860s. Um, and in fact, unfortunately for Elijah Otis and not till after his death, um, when it was his sons, Norton and Charles Otis, who they are the ones who are really responsible for launching um, what we now know as Otis Elevator. And it was their ingenuity and engineering skill, but also their marketing skill. They were amazing mm -hmm. businessmen. Um, uh, and it was their business efforts in the 19th century that um, launched the modern Otis company. And Otis ended up being, in essence, the only survivor of the 19th century American elevator industry. And um, when the time came in the middle of the 20th century to write the history of the elevator, well, Otis was the last man standing in the United States. And so they wrote the history of the elevator and Elijah. Yeah, okay. So, which is fine. I mean, it, I mean, that's that corporate histories have always worked that way. This uh, it's, this is not a criticism. Um, it, but what it meant was that there were lots and lots of people who were left out of the story. So was it important at the time no, because no one really realized what, you know, what had happened. And also throughout the 1850s, Otis, Elijah Otis, Otis only sold a handful of those machines. It was an effective safety device. Um, it did save lives uh, when it operated. It was used throughout the 1860s and most of the 1870s by Otis. And then it was, and then other, other more, other better safeties took over. Um, but it, it wasn't, a, you know, one of those historical moments where everyone picked their head up and thought, aha, the world has changed. The world just kept right on going. Yeah, okay. That's really interesting, actually, because as you said, looking around, he's the name that uh, consistently comes up, isn't it? And I guess at the end of the day, you know, uh, history is written, written by the winners, isn't it? Um, that's unfortunately the, 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 the taint that we have. Yes, and and I mean, and again, it's 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 a perfectly logical thing. And Otis, in telling the history, you know, uh, when you look at it, there, you know, it's it's very straightforward. But like most histories, when you delve into it and find out there were other people involved and other things going on, I mean, that always makes it interesting. I mean, that's that's very true of the history of you know twentieth century real estate. We know a few names. Um, and that doesn't mean that other things weren't happening. One of the other things that I came across was the idea of elevator sickness. Um, do you want to maybe pass a few words on, on that concept? So when you get in the 19th century, um, as lift speed began to increase, um, there was, you could find the occasional news, newspaper article on people feeling uncomfortable in lifts. And it has to do with, with the very simple thing, typically going, uh, when the lift was going down, um, uh, it, you know, the, you, the, it, you, your equilibrium is slightly unbalanced and, you know, you, you may have a change of ear pressure 
And if you are in any way prone to motion sickness, which of course is what it is, then you could feel uncomfortable. Um, part of that also had to do with the, um, again, small room being enclosed. If I am in any way claustrophobic, uh, a lift is not my friend. Um, and, but it, a lot of it had to do, part of it was sort of was simply the psychological impact of I'm in this tiny room. And uh, the, another factor that we've not mentioned is because the, the a comparison I've often made is we will crowd into a subway car um, and stand, you know, we're, so everyone is literally shoulder to shoulder touching. Well, there are windows in a subway car. Even though I'm in a dark tunnel, I still have some sense of the world outside of the car. When I'm in a lift, not only do I have no sense of the outside world, I have no idea how this thing works. Mm. I've seen bad movies on television of lift cables breaking and things, you know, all, you know, I, but uh, for the average person, this is, this is a black box mystery. So if I'm in any way prone to motion sickness or claustrophobia or, or whatever, it would not take too much to make me feel uncomfortable. Hey, interesting. Lee, the, um, what effect did the lift or what effect was there on the lift in the movement from um, masonry to steel frame construction, or was it the move from like what 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 drove that? Was it was it the move from masonry to steel construction that impacted the lift, or was it the lift that impacted the move from masonry to steel construction? If you sort of get what I'm coming at, right? That's that's a great question. So we can sum up um, lift technology very quickly. Um, we begin with steam engines. Uh, and they would turn what were known as winding drums. Imagine a spool of thread, the cable wound around that. They have a limitation in height. And also there's a steam engine running con continually in my basement. Not a good thing. Imme almost immediately after we begin to have a, a larger scale use of passenger elevators in the 1870, we switched to hydraulic elevators um, of a variety of different kinds. And when I switch to hydraulic elevators, that switch is made for a couple of fundamental reasons. One, I get rid of the steam engine and I save money because I'm not buying, I'm not paying to run a steam engine all the time. It's cheaper to run a hydraulic elevator. And two, the hydraulic elevator will go higher than a steam powered elevator would. And that change yeah. corresponded with a desire in the United States to build taller buildings. So I have a desire to build taller buildings and I have a technological need. And there's a gradual shift to hydraulic elevators. Hydraulic elevators through most of the 19th century in the United States, they are the dominant, that they dominate the marketplace. Late 1880s into the early 1890s, the electric motor is introduced and electric elevators begin to be considered, they do not take over the marketplace as the dominant type, the electric traction elevator until the early 20th century when once again, there's a desire to build taller buildings. So in many ways, it's the desire to go taller that helped drive the, the development of what it, to go from steam to hydraulic and go from hydraulic to electric and the modern traction um, and, and yes, we could not have the modern skyscraper without the modern elevator, but first we had to have the desire 
to have the modern skyscraper. So I think the, 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 the latter thing that you said is that the desire to build tall um, really drove a lot of that development uh, because until that changed uh, and we wanted to go taller, the hydraulic elevator was, was meeting everyone's needs in a 20, 25 story building without any problem. The elevator itself has, I mean, it's had huge impacts on society, hasn't it? I mean, it, it changed the way our cities were built and how we live. Yes. Um, it, its initial impact was on the workplace where, um, you know, that is how we get to the office. And um, it certainly the, the development of high rise offices had a fundamental impact in, in large cities on how we think about work and how we think about the workplace. And as we had the growth initially of apartment buildings, um, that also changed how we live in that the, what makes the modern apartment possible. Now, it, it is however important to pause there. There were many cities where you had four and five rise, four rather four and five story apartment buildings with no lift. Well, mm when we look at the economics of who's living there and often those apartments also had no hot water. You know, the phrase cold water flat exists for a reason, you know? So, you know, those, those uh, apartment buildings with, with no lifts, lower working class, poor people, but the, the, the more posh apartments with lifts oper you know, I had a lift, I had a lift operator, and again, we could go back to something we said earlier, if I'm in an apartment building, there's a doorman, first line of security, there's the lift operator, second line of security, to make sure that no one comes in my building who's not supposed to. And- Yeah. I, I was just gonna say there too, Lee, it's, um, you know, in addition to the security, it also, um, uh, flipped the way in which we lived in those buildings as well, didn't we? That um, uh, the 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 more desirable locations were on the lower floors, so that you didn't have to go up so many flights of stairs. Whereas now, obviously, the the more desirable locations are are the higher apartments, the the penthouses and the like, with you know better views, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yes, and that, that change in real estate values took about a decade to really sink in. Um, but yes, it was an immediate recognition that um, higher is better. And one of the reasons uh, particularly was, especially in the 19th century, and it's still true today, um, in the 19th century, you know, you're above not only the noise, but uh, what's the best way to say this? In the 19th century, I have to remember, primary mode of transportation um, for many, many things in all our cities, horses. Well, what do horses do? A lot. Mm. Streets were not pleasant places. So the higher up I am, the air's much fresher, uh, the light's better, there's less noise because cities have always been noisy places. But yes, there was very quickly a, re a recognition that, you know, whether it's having my office on the top floor or, or my home on the top floor, uh, this is always a good thing. When you actually talk about that, the the elevator, I think it's um, or the or the lift, it's a it's a great analogy actually with the horses in the street. That um, there was a, uh, a a a world forum in the eighteen nineties about 
um, what were they going to do with all the, the horse poo that was in the city, that cities were growing so large and they were reliant on the horse that there was just, you know, such an abundance of um, manure that uh, they couldn't get out of the cities. And that was obviously a problem all around the world. Um, and, uh, I mean, bottom line is the... Um, unbelievably but the um the car fixed that environmental problems for our cities to enable us to um you know further um you know populate those uh, and increase our density yes and if, if we only knew what the <laughs> what the car was going to end up doing for us as well but that is one reason that um mass transit also developed uh the subway systems um you know that proliferated in european and, and american cities um uh, and, and, and other mass transit systems, more so in Europe and other places, regrettably, than the United States. We love our cars here. But that, again, is a really important point that um, if it wasn't for the lift, then we wouldn't be building um, architecture like we do now. We wouldn't be utilising the land content and amortising that cost upwards um, nearly as much. And, and that, of course, has spurred all sorts of other technological and social changes with regards to, as you said, transportation, subway systems, the way in which our cities grow and move. I mean, there's a there's an amazing amount of spill-on effect that the, uh, the lift has actually had within society and also economics. Yes, there's, there's no question that... Um... You're, I mean, yes, the, the sort of mega tall buildings that we're now building, um, the, a, a, a very real movement that's underfoot to, to increase urban density and, and make, you know, high rise living, um, you know, a more, uh, you know, it's already the dominant type, but to really have more and more people live in cities with the idea that if we're concentrated together, we may be able to use resources more effectively um, but you know, none of that, as you say, is you know, would be possible without the lift. And the, and this is something we may touch on as we move forward. Of course, in all buildings, but specifically office buildings, the economics of the lift is is of critical importance. And by that, I mean how many, and how fast. I was going to ask you about that because it sort of comes back to that point of uh, the the lift elevator. Um, uh, but I remember reading um, about uh, the architect uh, John Root tried to calculate, um, you know, how many he tried to come up with a formula with with regards to how many lifts a building should have and at what pace should they move and at what floors should they go to? Because we need to remember that before the advent of um, the, the call button that we ding to call the elevator that, you know, we had to literally call out to get an elevator, didn't we? Yes. The, um, and, and, and John Root is, is the first, is the first person I know of writing in, I think it was 1890, who attempted to, and they were very general terms, but attempted to what we would now uh, talk about is defining lift traffic. Um, how you determine lift traffic is, is now a science. Um, the latest, lift, latest book on lift traffic is about two inches thick um, in terms of mathematical formulas and all those things. But yes, the, in the beginning, the 19th century, um, if I wanted to call the lift, I literally did that. I stood by, was open, often an open grill work, and would yell 
um, that I wanted to go up or down and the lift operator would show up. And the first traffic control systems that were put in place in large buildings um, and here we have to add another person into this. All large buildings had, a, had an individual known as the starter because they were responsible for starting the elevators on their journeys. And, and it was their brain, so to speak, that governed traffic control in a large building. And often the directions to the lift operators were that um, at set intervals, even if I don't have anyone in my car, I would take my car up to the top floor of the building and then take my car down with the idea that that's how I might catch someone who needs the lift. Mm. And also that meant that the lifts were constantly available um, in a building. And as we go through into the early 20th century, we begin to have more uh, some sophisticated, both technology, but also strategies for um, deciding, well, how many lifts do we need? Um, how fast do they need to go? And here, speed is, is an interesting thing when it comes to lifts, because sometimes uh, a building owner might say, well, I, I'll, I'll just pick a number. You know, I want, you know, 500 feet per minute lift speed. I want something really fast. But when you look at the lift operation, it typically only runs, say, three floors for, for, for the average run. It's never going to hit maximum speed. It's, you know, unless it's going from the first to the 20th, then yes, it'll sail along at maximum yeah. speed, but rarely would it do that. So speed is, is, you know, the maximum speed of a lift is important, but what's critical is, well, how is it actually functioning in a building? What's the length of, of its journey from floor to floor? Who, who is it serving? Um, and, and, that, and that very, by the time we get in the early 20th century, that's really recognized and, um, Surprisingly early, by the 1880s, we have some of the first, what we now think of as, uh, as express lifts, a recognition that you know, we have a certain population that doesn't need to stop any place but their final destination. And by the early 20th century, lifts are already zoned where you have a group of lifts serving floors one through 10, the other group serving 11 through 20, in a recognition that that, again, is more efficient service, because if I'm serving the upper half of the building, then the lifts get there much more quickly um, than if I'm trying to take in lifts and serve all 20 floors at the same time. This gets sorted out um, very quickly because businesses recognize that um, efficient lift service is important if my building is going to be successful. Because and, and that obviously remains very true today. If you get a reputation as bad lift service in an office building, this is a bad thing. I was actually just about to make that exact point that um, the product or the technological gain and hence the productivity gain is so important there, isn't it, to, to drive um, desirability. And obviously, the more desirable a location or a building becomes, then um, the, the greater the price people will pay to, to, to live in that location. So, I mean, all this sort of technology coming together, we take it for granted, but it actually, it has a huge impact on not only our lives, but also uh, land values and um, uh, apartment values. Yes, and, and more specifically in office settings, our expectations say a lot about uh, life in the 20th century, 21st century rather, in that um, current lift standards 
if, if it has a hall call button, and of course there are new systems out now, um, but if I push the up button, if I'm on the ground floor, um, good lift service, less than 30 seconds, that lift door better be opening. If I've waited 40 seconds, 45 seconds, 50 seconds, I'm not happy because we are not patient people. Um, the speed of life in the 21st century could be viewed as inherently, inherently unfriendly, perhaps, but it's not slow. And so it, it is really interesting to me that that is, and that's actually not new, that expectation that that lift will be there within 30 seconds. That's been around a long time, um, especially in business settings, because you know it is, it is about the pace of business and getting to my destination. It's interesting stuff, I reckon. Really interesting stuff. Um, now, I'd be amiss, Lee, if I didn't ask the question, um, how did Elevator Music come about? Um, it's a wonderful question. I do not know its precise origin. Um, I, it very likely had to do with department stores and... Um, you know, providing uh, what was may have been perceived as an amenity for their for their passengers. Um, we tend to think of elevator music today as really pretty horrible. Um, um, but it was it was. An, I, f- I find it very difficult to get. Whenever I think of elevator music, I always think of that scene in the Blues Brothers right at the end when they're uh, they're going to deliver the 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 money to the the sheriff or whoever it is that they owe the money to, and they're in the lift, and I think they're playing the. The, the the song is the the, the girl from Ipanema in the yep. background, and then they yeah. you know they flip to the police, and there's crazy just going on, then back to the elevator, and you know do do yeah. do do do. <laughs> yeah, it's um, quite honestly, what interests I mean that that's a it's a wonderful topic, but what interests me more in some ways are how many songs there are about elevators. Um, and, and certainly there are lots of rock songs. Aerosmith is a good example, Love in an Elevator. Yeah, yeah, um, I hadn't thought about that. But if you look through um, the, ninth, the, the 20th century, um, there are a surprising number of songs about elevators. Um, and, uh, and so I'm, I'm as interested in, in that. And that, that, that leads, I mean, that's another, I mean, it's a related topic is that one of the reasons that I think, uh, I, I know I said elevator, I'll, I'll, I'll say lift again, that lifts um, <laughs> are so interesting. And, and, and in this, I think they're unique. They're the only piece of building technology that has such a large cultural presence. Almost everyone has a lift story. Um, they're in children's books. They're used in mystery books. They've been on television programs, in movies, um, poems, songs, art. Uh, I can't think of another piece of building technology that has such a large cultural footprint as the lift. I hadn't thought about that, but you're absolutely right. It is, um, I guess it just goes to show how much of an impact they have um, on, our, uh, on our lives every day, don't they? Yes. And especially if you, you know, and if someone has traveled someplace and seen a beautiful old lift or, um, um, uh, you know, a lift with a, with a window in it that, you know, or lifts in the Eiffel Tower or, you know, the, the, 
the express lifts up to the to the uh, observation tower, a very tall building where they tell you how fast you're going or, or do some wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it all then becomes, you know, you know, they make wonderful stories. I know for myself that often when I think about uh, a lift, if I think about, you know, um, my memories of a lift is actually <clears throat> going to the city with my grandmother as a, as a very small child and going into a department store, uh, David Jones here, and they had still, when I was a kid, the, the, the lift operator and she had to clunk the handle over and she'd always announce what floor we're getting to and what's on the floor. And, you know, I still remember that as a, uh, as a kid, as a, yeah, as a very strong memory. And, um, you know, that, you know, I guess it was a few years ago, but you know, that's still, we, I mean, the, I guess the point I was trying to make is a, the connection, but B, we still had, um, elevator operators, you know, operating, you know, well into the seventies, although from what I understand the the bulk of, um, uh, elevator uh, operators was sort of gone 1960s is it sort of fair to say around that time that that they really got phased out yes so um uh so by the 1930s um all modern elevators had push button control in the cab in the cabs all modern lifts anyone could go in a lift cab and push a button but we still had op elevator operators in all tall buildings the reasonable question why because we didn't have any control, we didn't have any traffic control systems. There was no automated system to govern their movement. Therefore, you still had to have elevator operators running at set schedules to facilitate the flow of traffic through the buildings. That was true in the 1930s, 1940s. Early 1950s is when we have the first automated traffic control systems that allowed uh, people to fire their, their lift operators. And the advertisements that appeared in the early 1950s, this was a very different time, made um, no bones about it. In the advertisement copy, it would say very clearly, install our automatic operatorless lifts and you will save this much money per operator per year. Yeah, right. And it was that mercenary, but, um, and, so one of the interesting things about that shift in the 1950s is that we have to think about you know, a large city that has all of these elevators and they all have operators. Well, the operators just didn't disappear overnight. Only the most recent modern buildings, and this is where elevator technology meets modern architecture, the first glass and steel modernist skyscrapers, they had operatorless lifts and they, they might, you know, they might be the only, they were the only buildings in, in the city to have them because you didn't replace lift technology lightly. It's really expensive. And the, one of the most remarkable things about that story to me is, and this has been, this was documented at the time, the new glass and steel skyscraper opens, no operators in the lifts. People go into the building for the first time. They step in the lift car and they step right back out and say, where's the guy who's supposed to run this? Oh, we don't have, uh, we don't need uh, them in our building. And people said, I, I don't I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't want to do this. Now, this seems nonsensical today. And an analogy that I've heard is like the driverless car. It's not quite the same thing, but it took time 
for people to get used to driving the elevator themselves and what the what the what driving the lift themselves what some lift manufacturers they played around with a number of things one of them put a recording in so when you stepped into the lift car it said hello you have entered an operatorless lift please push the button and select the floor that's your destination like really i need that but it was supposed to calm me down and make me feel better so that I wouldn't, and, and again, it, it, it seems difficult to believe now, but it, it is a useful reminder that, you know, of, of when technology is new or it changes, how challenging it really can be. And, and it took all of the 1950s, one, to gradually replace the majority of lifts with new lifts that had automatic control, but, that, but for the riding public, in office buildings to become accustomed to that. Now, in an apartment building, when the lift when the lift operator was off, I would run that myself and not think of think of it. But this is my home, hmm. different than where I work. Interesting, isn't it? Do you want to talk to Lee about um, September nineteen forty five when there was a mass elevator operator strike that ground New York um, to a halt, apparently. Um, 15 odd thousand um, lift elevator operators went on strike and people couldn't go to work. They couldn't get out of buildings. They couldn't get up to work. I mean, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because it wasn't the only strike either. They were right. There was quite a bit of this going on while the um, operator lift was coming in, wasn't it? Uh, there, there were numerous strikes, and I do not know uh, as much about that strike as, as, I, as I probably should. It, what, what, where it probably impacted the most is um, by that point in time, most lifts would have had push buttons. So the average person would have been able to, to operate the lift. What would not have worked is there would have been no traffic control. So that it would have been very slow um, getting anywhere. Because um, I guess the best way to think to think about this is with um, collect my thoughts. So with a lift operator, um, most most of them had a way to either be informed by the starter or to monitor uh, calls. And once if I'm on the let's say it's a 20 story building and I've just picked up passengers on the 16th floor and my car is full. As the lift operator, I could press a button and bypass all the other floors and ignore all the other calls because my car is full. Mm. Because we've all had that experience. You know, we press the button, we wait, we wait, the lift door opens, and the car is full. <laughs> we're not happy. This is not a good thing. And we're making an assessment. Can I get in? They don't look very friendly. I'll stay here and wait for the next one. If we take the lift operator out and they're on strike, then there's no one to do to do that traffic control. So I'm sure it was a nightmare and a related, sort of related to that, but an anecdote from when lifts were first introduced in office, in, introduced into office buildings in the 1870s. At the close of business, the lift operators would go home. Building was closed. So you're in a 10 story building and you suddenly realize I forgot something and you run back to your building and you're on the ninth floor in the lift operator's home. Now, a lift then didn't have a button, it had a rope. 
you had to pull up or down on the rope to make the lift move. Well, you don't know how to do that. And the rope's kind of greasy. And, and so now you have to walk nine floors up. There were stories that appeared in editorials in newspapers saying, I almost died going back to get a, to get a letter in my office. Um, <laughs> you don't think about that. But, you know, think, because now it's always there. It's always accessible. Yeah. And that's why yeah, it's, it's, a, yeah. it's amazing how quickly we become accustomed to that sort of stuff, isn't it? That we just, um, uh, yeah, we just, um, we, it's just life now, isn't it? It's the expectation, push the button, the lift appears and off we go. And of course, in many modern buildings now, I don't even push a button. Um, I, I walk into a building and there's often a nice little uh, keypad. And I, if I'm going to 15, I push 15 and it would fly, depending on the building, it might flash the letter C. So I look around yeah. and I go stand in front of the elevator marked C. And then I step in, I don't touch anything and off I go to floor 15. Um, that is one trade name for that is destination dispatch. And it is proven to be a very effective way in large buildings of dispatching passengers, maximizing uh, traffic flow, reducing to a certain degree the, uh, the amount of elevator traffic, thereby saving energy. Uh, but most importantly, getting me to my dis destination faster. Now, one of the downsides to that is, um, and it may be the downfall of what is often uh, talked about, or rather often referenced, is the famous elevator pitch, where I'm yeah. talking to you, and I've got an idea, and I'm going to use that elevator ride, and I'm going to make my pitch, because you can't escape me. But I'm going to 15, and you're going to 16. We both key in where we're going. They send me to elevator C. They send you to elevator D. I, I, I can't talk to you. <laughs> I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I had my pitch ready to go. So I start, I guess, yelling at you in the lobby saying, no, 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 don't, don't go, Jeremy. This is, I got a really good idea. Yeah, well, technology changes our behavior, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, speaking of technology, Lee, how high can we go? So, and I mean that, sorry, I mean that not just in how high can we go now, but how high can we go in the future? So how high we can go in the future is, is really dependent on, on a fundamental thing. Modern lifts, the modern traction elevator, um, it's very simple technology. Um, I have steel cables. On one end of the, of, of, of the cables is the car. On the other end of the cables is the counterweight. And the cables wrap around, um, we think, pulley in the industry, a shiv. Um, and, and the weight of the car and, and the counterweight create the traction so that when the shiv moves, the car goes up and down. It's very simple, that's a traction elevator. After, after I go so high, the cables will collapse under the, they'll, they'll break under their own weight. So there's a limit to how high I can go with a traction elevator. We're basically at that limit right now. Now there are new cable types and new materials that have been used that have allowed us to go higher but we're pretty much at that limit now, um, unless we adopt a model. Um, the World Trade Center towers, are good. The, the old World Trade Center towers um, are a good example. They were basically three buildings stacked on top of each other. In the 100 floor building, there were elevators that served the first 30 floors, 
then a, and then a group for the second 30, and then a group for the, for, for the last 30. And then you rode up to sky lobbies and changed. So I could continue to stack buildings on top of each other and I could go really, really high, but I would have, a, I would have an interrupted elevator journey. I couldn't have an express elevator to the top. What will change this is if we can devise a system that gets rid of the cables. Um, ThyssenKrupp in Germany right now is experimenting with an elevator system that they have branded as multi, which operates on maglev technology where there are no cables. And the elevator car rides up and down using that technology. And that technology also allows the car to go side to side if you want. Mm. And if that technology proves to be viable and I no longer have any cables, then I can go as high as we can build. That technology is really interesting too, because it's not just the height that um, where the productivity gains will um, occur, but because it can move sideways means that you'll be able to have multiple um, uh, lifts within the one shaft, won't you? Yes, and that's that's one of the benefits that is being advertised for multi is that because there are, are no cables to get in the way, yes, in a single lift shaft, I could have four or five cars moving up and down simultaneously, uh, serving different parts of the building. And um, and with modern sensors and, and, and other technologies, um, in theory, that can be done very safely and the cars won't run into each other. Another advantage to that system, um, as it's been talked about, is if a lift car needs service, it can you know, travel down and then move horizontally across to a service bay and be worked mm -hmm. on. And, and you, you, don't, uh, you don't lose access to a lift shaft. Most of us have walked into buildings and there's a sign that says lift out of order or their lift being serviced. And that entire lift shaft then cannot serve the building during the day. Yeah, I think that I read several years ago um, with regards to uh, the Burj Khalif lift that one of the issues they had with that was um, the speed at which they wanted to move people from bottom to top and also pressurizing the lift because of the speed and the height. Is is that correct? Um, I, I don't know about that particular lift. I do know that there are high that there are high speed lifts um, in some of what are called the super tall buildings where yes, you are quite right. The the lift cabin is pressurized just like an airplane because um, they the lift companies want to to set speed records in essence, you know, who has the fastest lift bragging rights for that kind of thing. Well, if I'm going, um, and, and, and I'm not going to quote a speed because I always get this, these facts wrong because I don't keep them in my head. But if I'm going yep. really, really fast in a lift car, if it's not pressurized, uh, my, and my ears are going to be very uncomfortable and, and could even be painful and could be dangerous. So yes, yep. They, yep. they are pressurized and often streamlined to, um, to allow them to, to move up and down the shaft uh, at, at, a, at a very high rate of speed. Lee, when you think about the lift and the development um, and all that we've talked about and, um, and all of your research, what would you say is like, what is the biggest impact 
that the lift has had? Where is it? Where is it really changed life economics, or or you know, where where do you think that it's had the biggest impact? Uh, I I just without a doubt the biggest impact is um, in in the development of the modern city where we have all of these high rise buildings. We're continuing to build high rise buildings. Um, especially in most cities, we're increasingly building high-rise housing. Um, none of those, of course, is possible without the lift. And, you know, that it is, it's had such a transformative effect on uh, not just American cities, but one of the most interesting things that happened in the 20th century um, is, you know, until sometime in the 1950s, 50s, maybe 60s, uh, there were almost no skyscrapers in Europe. There were none in London. Look at London now. Uh, there were none in Paris. And well, they built one and then they decided to build them all out of Paris because they didn't want any more in Paris. But there's a lot of skyscrapers in Paris. And if we think of, of Australia is a wonderful example, the transformation of Australian urban environments uh, in the second half of the 20th century, none of that happens happens without the lift. So it's um, and uh, you know it's 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 just been extraordinary. Was there a push from part of the architectural fraternity against the adaptation of the lift, or was it pretty unanimous that um, that they foresaw? Um, that they wanted to embrace um, the lift as a technology of the future. Uh, there was there was never any uh, any pushback from the architectural profession. The, the challenge uh, has has always been with changes in in lift technology. Is well, what do, and, and you know what do I do with this? I mean, the first architects who had to design buildings with lifts that was basically their question. Okay, fine. Where do I put this? How does it fit into my building? How does it, what is its role in the life of the building? And that's something, of course, we gradually sorted out and figured out elevator lobbies and all of those things, which took a long time to get to the modern elevator lobby. And that's still one of the things I think architects, um, to be honest, I think architects uh, could pay more attention to in that, uh, you know, how they design working with uh, clients, developers, and others, you know, how they design the lobbies, where, how the lifts are placed within a building, how they are, you know, serving the needs of, of the clients or the tenants, especially as buildings get larger and larger and we have multi-use buildings. And of course, that's, that's another factor too within the world of real estate is um, designing a lift service for a building that serves a purpose, knowing full well in 10 years, it will have a com completely different client base with completely different needs. How do I not, how do I design something that's that flexible? Um, this remains a fundamental challenge, I think specifically in the 21st century. And now is, is a perfect example. Um, I was in a meeting earlier today talking about the impact of COVID-19 and how many people will um, either continue to work at home or start flexing their works time and work three days at home and two days at the office. Well, if that 
impacts the entire population of a 30-story office building, I don't need to carry as many people. Well, the lifts are already there. I've already, that investment's already been made. Um, so that's another uh, economic factor. Um, and, you know, and also, and I don't know about Australia, but I'm familiar with uh, many cities uh, where former office buildings are being turned into apartments or housing or condominiums. Well, what do you do with the lifts then? Because I don't need the speed. So it's an interest, it is a really interesting design challenge. Mm. Mm. We're sort of drawing to the end on, uh, I think here, Lee, um, is there anything that you haven't covered that you think that um, you'd like to um, convey to listeners at all about the, about the lifts? Um, I, well, I would be remiss if I didn't say one very important thing about lifts. They are safe. They are incredibly safe. They have safeties. They have redundant safeties. I, I, I do understand you know, that many people may have concerns. Lifts are the safest possible way to travel. Can they break down? Yes. Do accidents sometimes happen? Yes. They're very, very, very rare. Um, it, uh, Hollywood doesn't help us here when lifts are these incredibly dangerous things. Um, you know, it, it's... They always seem to catch fire and, you know, you got to climb through the, the, the lid of them and up the, up the wires. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and it, it, it make it makes, it makes for good movies and it makes for good drama, but now lifts are very safe. Um, when you look at the history of accidents, uh, and lifts, the vast majority of the accidents are not the lifts fault. It's because we as human beings often do incredibly stupid things. <laughs> that's not hard to believe <laughs> it's um yeah we tend to have a bit of a habit of that don't we so, um lee it's been great talking with you um i found this episode really interesting and i think it's something that um you know the the, the modern lift as you said it's had an enormous impact on the development of our cities both commercially and uh, residentially um our usage of land is so important um and obviously the 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 modern lift has had a an enormous impact on that and and all the other things that that creates around a a city and an environment as we said transportation the way in which we work um, socialize uh etc it's it's something that um it's a technology that to me we often just you know we use and take for granted but we don't think about the actual effects that it actually has had on our lives. So, you know, I do thank you, you know, for your time today. Um, if listeners want to get in contact with you with any other questions, what's the best way to do so, Lee? Uh, the best way would be uh, by email. And okay. I could give you my email address if you'd like. I'll put the email address in the show notes below. Okay. So if anyone wants to get in contact with Lee, we can, uh, you can do that. Um, of course, you've authored a book. Um, called Ascending Rooms to Express Elevators, the history of the passenger elevator in the 19th century. If we want to get a copy, how's the best way to grab a copy of that on Amazon? Um, I, I, it is on Amazon, or you could go to um, Elevator World, Inc. Elevator World uh, was the publisher of my book, and um, they, are, they publish um, international trade journals for the vertical transportation industry globally. And so uh, they have a nice bookstore on their website as well. 
on. So you've written a lot of articles for them, haven't you? I've written, uh, it's, I've written over <laughs> 200 articles for them. And, and it's a little hard to believe that, you know, how can you write that much for something that just goes up and down, but there's, there's always something new to say. Oh, I think that says a lot about it. You're also working on a new, uh, a new project at the moment, aren't you? Yes, I'm working on a history of escalators and moving sidewalks that I hope to complete uh, mid this year. And then if I can do that, it would appear in print early next year. Ah, fantastic. Well, we'll definitely um, give people a link to that uh, when it comes out. So uh, to keep people in the loop. Lee, again, thanks for the chat. It's been a pleasure and very interesting. Of course, we'd love to help you on your property journey, so feel free to get in contact with us with your questions or queries. Don't forget to like, subscribe, or leave us a rating or review for Property Australia's favourite obsession. Thanks again for joining me, Lee. I have appreciated it. I've been your host, Jeremy Cowan, and until next time, let's keep obsessing about property. Any opinions or recommendations expressed should be considered general in nature, as they do not consider your personal objectives or financial circumstances. You should therefore consider these matters yourself before deciding whether the advice is appropriate to you and if you should act upon it. Should advice be sought, please seek an appropriately qualified advisor. Investing may not be appropriate for everyone, as there is inherent risk and the possibility of loss when investing in financial assets just as there is the possibility of profits. While useful for identifying patterns, history and past performance do not guarantee future performance. Calvin Flack has a commercial relationship with guests appearing on this production. 